Welcome to Rushcast. I'm Jay Mantis. Thank you very much for listening. We're moving on to our third album of the album series. And most of you know that album is called Caress of Steel. And I've got two guests with me today to talk about this album in detail. Uh, please welcome Jeff Hobrath from the last episode on Fly By Night. And also Nick Lulich. How you doing, guys? Great. I'm doing pretty good. Uh, you're you're on your own, listeners, trying to figure out which one is which, but maybe we'll figure it out by the end of the episode. Uh, so so Jeff has Jeff was around for Caress of Steel, and Nick was not. Nick, how old are you? Uh, fifteen. Nick's fifteen, but he was adamant about coming on Rushcast to talk about Caress of Steel, this album specifically. How it, this is your favorite album, Nick? Uh, close to it. What's your favorite? Clockwork Angels. Oh, uh, okay. That falls right in line with my theory, so I like that. <laughs> um, what is it about Caress that you like? Because those are two very different albums. Um, when I first really got into Rush, this was, I think, the third album that I listened to, and it really blew me away. And so when I started getting more into the community and found out that it wasn't the most loved album, it just kind of, I got a connection to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so... Do you lean towards, like, the, the longer tracks or maybe the first side more? I I, pref- I loved The Fountain of Lamnus more <laughs> than the first side, honestly. Okay. Jeff, what about you? Which which parts of this album do it the best for you? What What, what parts speak to you the most? Well, there's a couple. I like, uh, like we talked about last time, I like the drum piece in uh, Fountain of Lamnus. They're right. Not the me. Necromancer like we thought, but the Fountain. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that influenced me. I was 13 when the album came out, and that influenced me, 13 going on 14, and that influenced me to be a drummer um, was that album. And I, I fell in love with that album. I'm still in love with that album. Um, I'm really Im- impressed by Nick, Nick that at his age that that album stands out to him. That's awesome. But it is, it's a great album. It's way underrated. Um, but I'd say Lamette. And I also really like, I think I'm going bald. I think it's, um, I have a good childhood memory from that song. You um, went bald as a child? No, <laughs> I I had my best friend in high school, Rick. Um, he didn't know anything about Rush at the time, and when I got a hold of that album from my brother, I heard that I think I'm going bald, and I was telling my buddy in high school, and he's like, "There's no song called I Think I'm Going Bald." I was like, "Yes, there is. It's awesome. You gotta hear." It. <laughs> so he came over, heard it, and he's still a Rush fan to this day because of that song. I, I, the interesting, I think yeah. that song is the closest song that we have to the debut album. Like that song could easily be yeah. on the debut album. Uh, it's almost like a supreme throwback to the earliest days, in my opinion. It's so funny, yeah. like how much yeah, the first right. side of the album is different than the second side. Uh, well, you know, the only thing I would say to that is um, the changes, you know, in the um, chorus. Or I think I'm going bald because he's playing a funky drum thing. He doesn't keep like the rhythm going. 
So I would say it's a little bit more progressive than the first album, even that song. <laughs> because John Rutsey? That's that's the argument you're making? It'd be just, no, you know. <laughs> well, maybe, I don't know about that. I, I think <laughs> it's it just got a weird, you've got a weird thing going on in the chorus in that song mm-hmm. that my, like my judge to a progressive song compared to like the early rock stuff is this, can you dance to it or not? And That's I don't true. think there's any song you can dance to on Caress of Steel. Okay. Honestly, honestly, I could... Go ahead, Nick. Uh, I could see it more as a song on Fly By Night rather than the debut. Um, yeah, that, that makes sense. I agree with that. Yeah. And I also want to backtrack a little bit. I think you said Fountain of Lamnus was the reason that you took up drums. Yeah. Uh, to kind of contrast that, Bastille Day is why I picked up bass. They're right. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, these songs are so raw in those early days. So for a drummer or a bassist especially, who, you know, in the late 70s and the mid-70s, guitar was ruling that, the you know, the genre, and bassists were kind of left in the dust unless you were Chris Squire or Geddy Lee, you know? So right. uh, it makes sense, I think. Those are very raw parts and fun to play as a bass player. Um, and I think Geddy, Geddy started showing himself a little more on Caress of Steel than he did on Fly By Night in the debut because I think he was more of a rhythm bass player on those first two, just kind of back in Alex, but on Caress of Steel. Um, do you guys agree with that, that I think he started showing a little bit more as his own standalone instrument there? Yeah, well, yeah. what's cool is, like, what I noticed listening to this album again is that there's still moments of Getty playing behind Alex and nothing else. There's no So, like, yeah. as we go down the road, when Alex takes a solo, you'll hear an additional guitar part layered underneath it. And that was a conscious effort they made on Clockwork to stop doing that, is to, when Alex solos, well, there's no other guitar on stage, so let's not have any other guitar parts. Let's just have Getty underneath. That still happens a lot on on Caress of Steel. Yeah, yeah, and the, I think the uh, latest example of that would probably be Passage to Bangkok on Twenty One Twelve. During that, but yeah, on parts like Penestay of uh, from Lamnet, he still is very much so in the rhythm base. Yeah, yeah, maybe Lakeside Park. As well, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. but he—he's just starting to peek through and show himself more, and it really shows the beginning of that. Yeah, um, I think, like I said, the first side of the album just feels so different. It's a very poppy—not poppy, but a, a bouncy, a light-hearted feel. Maybe I uh, set aside Bastille Day for a second. Um, <laughs> And then we get this dark, super serious um, vibe on the second half. Uh, Lakeside Park is so uh, chirpy and and, and good-spirited. Do you know what I mean? Uh, And I'll also say that hearing Lakeside Park live changed my perception of Uh, that song a lot. (laughs) You didn't like it before? I, it's not that I didn't like it. I didn't appreciate it for what it was. Um, there's some, if you analyze it uh, th- harmonically, there's some weird things happening 
some things you wouldn't normally expect, like what your ear wants to hear. And that always kind of irked me a little bit. But now hearing it live, I realize how, how absolutely killer it sounds. Yeah, it's a cool song. Yeah. I, I love this song. I love I love Neil's footwork on the bass and how he's tight with Getty on that. And it's just a mellow, just a really cool groove. And it's a kind of a different rhythm, really, when you listen to the hi-hat and the snare and you separate that from his, his footwork and Getty's bass playing. It's a really, really cool song to play. You know, it's fun. As mellow as it is and it's a fun song to play. As I listen to the two longer tracks, I, I I start to realize, and this is something I noticed even in the last year, because I remember talking about it on the show, I realized how nice Fountain is, like how, how well it is put together compared to the Necromancer. Initially, I, I thought Necromancer was a better tune. But now as I listen, I think the Necromancer for me is really just an exercise in cool riffs. Like, it's just kind of a collection of riffs that sound cool. Like, they don't really... They don't really mean much to me collectively as much... But Fountain, I get a collective song, a piece of art, right. I think. And as I listen to Necromancer, I think, these sound great. These are cool riffs, right. but that's just kind of all they are in this song, are riffs. Right. Fountain of Lameth is similar to 2112 in that respect you know the whole story works together mm-hmm. yeah really I, kind well. of, I kind of view it as a prelude of sorts to 2112 like showing what they were about to do That's and it, true. it it felt like they weren't quite going full force on it and mm-hmm. i think that if they did it could have been a bit more well received with the fans because mm-hmm. where they're at right where they were on the album with it, it just felt like, even though it's one of my favorite Rush songs, it felt halfway done. Like, there was more that they could have put into it. But it is, I agree, it is beautifully uh, blended together. Why do you guys think this album was not perceived well? Uh, Go ahead, Nick. I think it was the contrast, purely the contrast between what they had done before. Like, and the fact that they, as I said, they didn't go full force on it. It seemed like they were still trying to hold back and say, we can still do these other songs if you want. But then through that whole sided song on there. And I feel like if they didn't do that, maybe it would have been more well received. So maybe yeah, maybe they were kind of torn between two worlds and 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 not fully committing to either of them. Yeah, Jet- you know, I I think it was their they they completely stepped from rock and roll into progressive rock at that point, mm-hmm. and you know I think their hardcore fans, um, I think it kind of separated the pack a little bit, you know. Yeah, and I think it just—I think it took a year for it to catch on, and by then, twenty-one twelve was out, and it was a, a much more refined. But I think uh, I think it was a timing, and it was kind of an experiment for that. It was huge. That's a big difference from Fly By Night, you know. So the fans that were listening to Fly By Night 
to go to Crest of Steel was almost two sets of different people, really. True. I mean, you would know better than me or Nick <laughs> because <Yeah. laughs> we, we didn't experience that. Uh, did you see any of these shows, Jeff? You know, I definitely saw a separation there with listeners. Caressa Steel, um, you were either going to fall in love with it or just not get it at all. You know what I mean? Back then. Yeah. Um, but I'd say similar sounding albums might have been. There was some Zeppelin out, and I, I'm thinking, like, Necromancer kind of reminds me of some Black Sabbath stuff that was out there, but obviously much better. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there was really nothing like it, so most people, I mean, even today, a lot of people don't get Rush, but there's a huge underlying fan base, right? I think that fan base was there with Teresa Steele. But a lot of those people were my age. I was 13, 14 years old. We couldn't buy albums. We were borrowing albums. So maybe that's why the sales weren't there. But if that album came out today, I think it would sell like crazy, you know. Um, and if we're going into the influences that were on that album a little bit, I'd like to say that a bit on Lakeside Park and really on Fountain of Landness, I could see the influence that Genesis had on them. Big time, yeah, that's a good call. Yep. And uh, the back very... when Genesis, that's when Genesis was progressive too. Oh Before yeah, they went, they went poppy, you know. But yeah, they, they were <laughs> yeah. very progressive. You're right. That's a good call. That reminds me of another band I know. Which that band? was that was progressive and went poppy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who could you? Who are you talking about? <laughs> what band am I talking about? <laughs> no, I know. Um, <laughs> Are you talking Rush again, Jay? Oh, only a little bit. <laughs> what's wrong with me talking Rush on this? They didn't go that far. Yeah, come on. <laughs> uh, you're right. You Bet Your Life was the furthest thing from a pop song. <laughs> um, yeah, I... I I wonder what the band thinks about this album because Getty oh. says things like it was, um, you know, we uh, we beat this phrase to death, the down the tubes tour, and yeah, maybe the tour sucked, but what about the material? They, you know, um, they said they liked the material when they released it, but now, like, do they? They don't revisit it often. I think maybe that has to do with the singing, and also I'm sure they think what they wrote on Signals is better than Caress, but Getty, uh, go for it. Getty has actually said that he can't listen to much bef- uh, much prior to 2112 because it makes him cringe. And I think he actually specifically named called Lakeside Park with that. Oh, no. <laughs> and that's why it stunned me so much. You know, I was sitting there on the uh, Rush forums. I had my friend on Skype, and we were reading the set list, and Lakeside Park came up. <laughs> and we were just, like, did not see it coming. That was awesome. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, yeah. I wonder, like, maybe, maybe Getty just doesn't like it. Maybe Alex or Neil. I assume that would be Neil. It sounds like a a very memorable sort of theme in that song lyrically. Maybe, uh... yeah. And look, like looking fondly, looking back fondly on memories. Yeah, it was very fitting for our forty. Yeah, I, I was most shocked. They, I mean, I was shocked they played Lakeside Park. But I thought, if anything, on Caress of Steel, we're going to hear Bastille Day. Oh, yeah. Yeah, me, me too. That's what I thought. A bit of but, uh, I, wonder, that 
I wonder if because of his comments in the movie, if there was an outcry from fans, you know, maybe they realized how much Lakeside Lakeside <laughs> Park meant to the fans. Yeah, Lakeside you know? Park hate mail. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> I mean, I love that song. I was bummed when he he didn't like it on the album. I mean, on the movie, I was like, Candy, that's a great song. I love your voice." <laughs> yeah. Well, now you know how I feel when he when he craps on Tyshawn. Oh, I love Tyshawn. <laughs> <laughs> it's another song that everybody. It, it, it's I think that they have these transi- transitional albums. That often get a lot of hate. Tess Brecco being one of them, Hold Your Fire being another, and then uh, Caress of Steel being the first one, where it's mm-hmm. like they're just starting to experiment with new sounds transitioning between these eras. And it really goes down to a specific core group of fans to enjoy each one. Yeah. I, you know, I think the reason that album really had a hard time with sales was Fly By Night had a lot of shorter songs that could get airtime. Mainly Fly By Night played a lot, and I heard it on the radio a lot in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. But there's nothing on Corrosive Steel that they could put on the air. You know what I'm saying? That because they were too long, the there was no such thing as iTunes. Nobody could download the song and listen to it. It was going to be played on the air or not. And I really think it was too soon for that album. So I think that's largely why that one. Yeah, so, so you're saying maybe back then, hearing a, a new track on the radio was how you heard a band's new music. And if none of those tracks were on the radio or, or, exactly. or built for the radio, then no one was going to hear it. No one was going to go to the shows. Exactly, and you know, if your friend would loan you an album or something like that, but yeah, there was no other way. So, so um, you mentioned it being sort of like a transitional album between Fly By Night, the old style, and the new style of Twenty One Twelve. And if we want to call it that, I can compare it to what we've often talked about other albums being transitional albums. Like I've I've mentioned Grace Under Pressure, and while I got backlash from from that. Um, but people said it's absolutely not a transitional album. Uh, I could argue maybe it is. It functions as that sometimes between power windows and signals. Uh, maybe not to this degree and to this extreme. But I think, well, I guess I can't say Grace Under Pressure is as hated as Caress of Steel. Because, and, and that one did have radio hits on it. Um, yeah. But I don't think Grace Under Pressure is ever... It's rarely mentioned as, oh, this is my number one album, or this is my top three albums, and um, maybe there's something there. Maybe I'm just fishing for stuff. That's a great album. I love Grace Under yeah. Pressure. Yeah, probably top five. Let's do, a, let's do an album series where we just bring on people who hate each album. <laughs> and, and see if anyone downloads well, you're gonna it. Have your, you're going to have your entire listener base for Hold Your Fire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It'll be... I love Hold Your Fire. I think that's my favorite album now, Hold Your Fire. I really do. Wow. I think, oh, Jay, Jay, is that your dad's favorite? I think... That's my dad's favorite, hands down. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have to agree with him. I, 
It used to be hemispheres, but not to get off topic, but now it's holy fire. That's Jeff. That's such a big jump. <laughs> <laughs> from hemispheres to hold your fire i don't those might be the two most different albums that exist know, right <laughs> but that's what's wonderful about being a rush fan there's such a variety and there's it's i mean oh my goodness those guys cover such a huge spectrum spectrum of music that's why some albums get bashed on and some don't and you know there's just a group for every set of albums they have and just like, man, how, how many bands really have that collective amount of work that's that broad? Yeah, it's amazing that Hemispheres style. and Hold Your Fire were made by the same band. <laughs> you know, yeah. and you could take any couple of, let's take Caress of Steel and Roll the Bones. Like, they're, they're very, very different things. Yeah, they're um, like two different bands, you know, but the yeah. same three guys, hard to believe. What's, what's funny about Caress, in my experience, is like, for example, this week I listened to it a bunch, but unlike other albums where I'll study up on it, I didn't listen to it on repeat. I would listen to it once, and then I would give it a rest for the day, and then the next day I'd listen to it again. I can't do... I can't... For example, I'm on the train, I'm listening to Caress of Steel. When I get off the train, it's over, and Bastille Day starts playing again. And I thought, oh, okay, I'll listen to it again. And halfway through Bastille Day, I went. I can't listen to this again. I can't. I can't do it. Uh, the, you know, it's not a secret that this music doesn't appeal to me as as much as the newer stuff. Um, but it's not to it's not to say I don't like that stuff. It's I think it's a testament to the sort of material on this album where you get done and you're exhausted. You just got through the Necromancer and the Fountain of Lemneth back to back. And you're you're sort of overstimulated. You're like, I just need a break for a second. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's like it's like putting twenty one twelve on repeat. You you listen to the first song, and then it's just like an immediate adrenaline drop when Passage to Bangkok starts. Mm-hmm. Then you hear the opening synth note to twenty one twelve, and you're just like, no, <laughs> I can't. <laughs> Plus you, plus, you know you got a minute, a minute and a half before you hear any uh, of that synthesizer before you hear any music. Uh, but, but it's not like that with counterparts, vapor trails, snakes. I like, I can, I can listen to those albums, and if there's still time to listen to music at the end, and my CD repeats, then I can easily just listen to the album again. It, it doesn't hurt my brain. <laughs> there, there have probably been days where I've listened to Clockwork Angels like five or more times on repeat just even if it's in the background clockwork it's funny like if you don't know what my theory is it's that you're the first album you're exposed to its release of is close to your favorite album and snakes and arrows is that album for me and that is one of my favorites um from my experience and talking to listeners that this has been true and here we have Nick Lulich, who says, you know, I'm 15 years old and my favorite album is Clockwork Angels. Nick, do you remember the release of Snakes? What do you say? Do you remember the release of Snakes and Arrows? No. 2007. Yeah, okay. I, I honestly, I did not get into Rush until quite recently. I think a little over a year now. But have just... Uh, I wish I could have 
a seven-year-old on my show. <laughs> a seven-year-old who's like, I love Snakes and Arrows. This is my favorite. That's hey, a great album. They're all great. Oh, yeah. Uh, very, very bluesy. Nick, did you say you had some, like, uh, little-known facts about Caress or something like that? Or did I dream that? Sure. I guess not. I guess I dreamt it. What's that, Jay? I'm sorry. I was just wondering. I thought Nick said he had like a little known fact or something like that, but I, I probably had a dream about that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't think I do. There, There is a couple things. There's a set list online, a rumored set list, that has Caress in full on it. And it, it's likely fake. It's on set list Yeah, Oh, yeah, okay. And and it, I, I doubt it's real. I mean, maybe they did one show where it was like a night with, but or an evening with, but that seems a bit far fetched. Mm-hmm. And then I found a review from some magazine around that, like from right before, or like right after Crest Steel was released. Uh-huh. And it threw me off because it was a three out of five star review. And I would have expected way lower. And they were pretty much saying, I, I'm interested to see where this goes next. It's very weird, very different, but still interesting. It, yeah, and, and I say this all the time. you got to go back and think about yourself as a fan. I mean, Jeff was a fan <laughs> during when Caress was released. <laughs> But you and I, Nick, have to realize this was only their third album. There was nothing else. And yeah. with Fly By Night, I said, I, I know I would have loved it if this was brand new and this was all they had. Um, oh, I don't yeah. know if that would be the case with Caress. I have no idea. But oh, yeah. um, I imagine that the Caress of Steel tour contained a lot of Caress material um, because that's all they got. I see it with Periphery now. And I, I know I talk about Periphery a lot. But the thing is, it's one of the few bands where I'm around for like their inception. You know what I mean? I I was conscious of their first, second, and third album. Um, right. I can actually pull up the Curses Steel set right now. And they play they they play a lot of music from their current tour because they don't have a lot of material. You know? No, right. And early on, like I challenge you to take Curses Steel and then pull up albums that were released at the same time frame or just before. And that's all we had. And then do that comparison. In other words, other bands that were releasing their material, you know, you can't, it's, it was so dramatic for a young man like me. And I had all the typical stuff I heard my buddies were listening to, Bad Company, Kiss, and then all of a sudden he was Crest of Steel. And you're like, oh man, you know? So like, what did your, what did your Kiss friends think of Caress of Steel? Or or even Rush. Okay, my group, my, my 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 group of friends. Because if they were seeing they Kiss, they probably saw Rush. Oh, they all made fun of me in a good way, lighthearted. Like, okay, they were all into the typical the Zeppelin, ACDC, all the good bands. They were all good. Um, Pink Floyd, and I was the only Rush fan amongst my group. And then I slowly, slowly brainwashed them all. And then right around. Uh, twenty-one, twelve, and Hemisphere's time frame. They all saw the lights, 
and they were all Rush fans, and they all are to this day. So, hmm. um, what it took, it took a little, you know, and that's how Rush is for a lot of people, right? It takes a little bit, and all of a sudden the light bulb goes off, and you're like, okay, yeah, this absolutely. Is exceptional. And, yeah. and, 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 for- and usually it's musicians, I find, too. Musicians tend to love or appreciate Rush more than non-musician types, you know? You gotta love music. Right. I think. Absolutely. And look at look at the, the three same. of us talking right now. We're all musicians. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I found yeah. the Crest of Steel tour set list. It's only seven songs with the drum solo. Okay. It was Bastille Day, Anthem, Lakeside Park, The Necromancer, By Tour, Working Man, A Drum Solo, and then In the Mood. Classic. What was the last one? In the Mood. In the Mood. You gotta end with uh, In the Mood. If you're oh, yeah. <laughs> 70s Rush or 80s Rush or 90s Rush, have that's to end within the movie. All the world, that's almost all the yeah. world to stage before 2112, right? That's similar. Uh, it'd be yeah. cool. This would take some time, but it'd be cool to go through like all the set lists of each tour. And, I have. <laughs> and like count, like tally up all the songs represented from this album. Like I'm sure, I'm sure Bastille Day. I know Bastille Day was in there for a while, as an opener, even. Yeah, I played Bastille Day on the flight deck of an aircraft carrier in 1985 off the coast of Oman in the Battle of the Bands. <laughs> <laughs> so I think Bastille Day has been played. Uh, Jeff, I did that. Was, I did that too. Playing, like, I'm pretty. Blues. I'm pretty sure Nick has done that too. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's a great song to turn heads like, what? Yeah, right. Song? This is different. Yeah. <laughs> Bastille Day has been played 447 times. Wow, there you go. Wow. There's the number. They wow. have a list of all the songs that have been played. What one's been played number? the most? Let's guess. Of all Rush songs? Yeah. Oh, it won't, it won't only tell well, you for album? Well, that's a good question. The Rush song that's been played the most? Yeah. Temples of Steerings. Oh, yeah. It makes Second sense. to Drum Solo. But I'm not going to count that one. Yeah, 2112, they've probably played every every time since All the World Stage. Or yeah. a version of it, you know, any version of it. Um, it's, uh... Um... Working Man's got to be up there, too. Actually, Working Man is 12. Oh, wow. Yeah. But I think the reason that Temples of Sharing has more than the Overture does is because of... Um, medleys. Well, not just medleys, but I know that on at least the Grace Under Pressure Tour, I, I have a bootleg of it, where they played just Temples of Searing. Really? Uh, and nothing else. Yeah. And I think they did that for the Hold Your Fire Tour as well. Wow. Wow. It's too bad a show of hands doesn't give us a clear look into what the the tour was and what the show was. You know what I mean? Those old live albums were all cut together from different shows. They left a bunch of songs out. That's kind of a travesty in my opinion. Yeah. That's that's really the difficulty, especially with uh, live like all the records, if you're doing a three-hour show, each record, each side can only hold about 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. You've only got about two hours on both records. 
Yeah. Then you've got to just pick and choose. But it really bugs me when I see, like, all this empty space on one side of the record. <laughs> That's like, you had room for, like, three minutes there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it always bugged me when, for example, a show of hands. I know Prime Movers on the video, but not the audio version uh, or something. And there's, like, I think Turn the Page is also something like that. Where it's like I, I want to say turn the pages on. Hold on, I I have the record right here. I can look at it. Well, I I, I think turn the pages on here. Yes, it is. It's on the first song on the second side. On the video. Song. On the record. Oh, but maybe not the video. Or no, I don't know. All I know is th- yeah. they're not the same, and I feel like the sets yeah. should be the same. R forty even to a degree, like the extras on the audio far surpassed the extras on the DVD. Maybe that was a space thing, too. Um, I, I think the reason for that was because they had this third disc that they needed to fill space on. Oh, yeah. And that was really it. Yep. I mean, they had all these bonus tracks because of the changing set list, so it wasn't an issue. And, I mean, they had two versions of... Um, I think that they had two versions of losing it on the entire yes. album. Yes, that's right. One with Ben and one with Jonathan. Yeah. Uh, anyway, about Crest of Steel. <laughs> there's, I mean, <laughs> there's not much to say when, like, it very little is known about that time and that era and the that tour and, and, and how it was recorded. You know, like, if we were talking about yeah. moving pictures, we would be having a lot more to say about it. Yeah. 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 Well, it's... it's, it's it was a. It really was a transitional album. There's no doubt about it. It was their true introduction to the world that they were going to go progressive, that people liked it or not. I'm and sure. Like, their, so let know. me ask you, Jeff. At the time, was it the newest sound? Was it? Was it the like? Was it disliked by some just purely because it was weird and different and new? I liked it because it was way different than what was out there. Wasn't enough to satisfy my palate. You know, I just knew, and I was very young, don't get me wrong, but I started really loving music and every sound and every note and listening very clearly to what was going on when they would play any band. And um, I liked it because they were long, they were good songs, they were, it wasn't about a high school dance, you know, it was, I'm going to sit and listen to the drums, and then I'm going to sit and listen to the same song and listen to what the guitar guy's doing. And um, That album, that was, to me, again, there was nothing like it. That good that was out there that I had access to. Um, so it was mind-blowing, and I loved it. I would and sit and listen to that album over and over and over, and, and I would love to get addicted to it because it was just... Different, yeah, it's different, but good. The quality of musicianship was incredible. And Jeff, I'm curious, when you flip the record over to Fountain of Lambeth and listen to it for the first time, what went through your head? Like, were yeah. you expecting that at all? No, I had goosebumps. I, you know, it was uh, surreal. I just, it was like a discovery. Like, I don't know. 
don't know how to explain it. I felt like the guy on 2112 that found the guitar. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. What is this? What is this that I found? <laughs> <They do. laughs> it's not the deep bump, you know, stuff. And it's like, this is what I needed. <laughs> you know, it was unbelievable. Because honestly, there was stuff that was close. But nothing really like it. So I see Zeppelin. I was kind of in the Zeppelin and good stuff, but there was still, it just wasn't what I consider progressive now, which is challenging instrumental work, three guys in a studio, playing as, playing as hard as they possibly can, you know, but also really well song written. It's not just garbage, it's, those are really good. And, Thoughts, you know. Yeah. Yeah. The, the they're closest... orchest they're orchestrations, you know. They're fancy. It was. Uh, it blew me away, Nick. To say that, I mean, it absolutely blew me away. And I was a kid. And I was like, "This is new. It's not on the radio. What are they doing? How are they playing this? These people aren't human." You know. <laughs> the closest band that I can find, in comparison, at least to this form of rush that we know is progressive, is Dream Theater. And but they, very, yeah, and back then they didn't exist in my... No, know. they weren't even born. <laughs> no, exactly. I had, like, Yes and Pink Floyd were, and Genesis were the closest comparisons. Yeah. Um, er, early Pink Floyd, early Yes. But that was it's, it. It's funny know? to me because, like, I never think of Pink Floyd as progressive. I know, I guess they were, right? Um, yeah, I, I, I've never thought of that, and I've never grouped them in with progressives. But but people yeah, they're, do they're all the time. Stuff. They're, they're they, very early stuff, before Dark Side of the Moon. So, like, I'm a dumber. Well, I uh, guess even, like, animals, even their, some of their later stuff could be progressive. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's Again, the, my, my beta test on it was, can you dance to it? If you couldn't dance to it, that was your first sign that it might be progressive. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> that, that's what I, that's how I used to say, okay. If, and the second to that, you know, the length of the music, were they, was it based on, okay, it's got to be playable on the radio, or we're just going to play it till the song's done? <laughs> so, you know what I mean? Where the band would say, okay, this is long enough, we're going to put all these changes in. Um, you know, that to me is progressive. I guess it could, you know, not to be confused with jazz, because you really can't dance with jazz. But <laughs> I get it, you know. But anyway. <laughs> well, guys, thank yeah. you for coming on my show. Thanks for having us. <laughs> uh, hey, one last note. Yeah. Uh, that was you signed's first album. Caress of oh, Steel. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Oh yeah, his first that album. Was, uh, that was a pencil sketch that he did. That cover is. It's the Necromancer. It's just, yeah. I never noticed that. Yeah, Uh, yeah, honestly, I never knew what was going on in that artwork. Yeah, Yeah, it's the Necromancer looking through his prism eye. Yep, exactly. That's exactly right. But that was a pencil drawing, and that went straight from pencil to print like that. They modified the edging, but that's his original pencil drawing. That's the Oh, yeah. And it's you, it was mentioned in the uh, I want to say in either the Fly by Night episode, well, either of the episodes I went up. I think it was the Fly by Night. You mentioned that the Rush Mart was a printing error. The pink, yeah, when they went from yeah, 
Mercury Records, I think, because they switched from Anthem to Mercury, or I, I get it screwed up, or vice versa. But, I, I um, think it was Mercury to Anthem. Yeah, but I, but initially, and I could be wrong on that, but that's just from what I remember. No, I, I, I think heard you're right. Interview, yeah. When it but, switched labels, the, they got the print color wrong on the printer. But Crescent still is another printing error. Oh, really? It should, yeah, it should be silver. Is that oh, right? Yeah. To give it more of a steel-like feel. Like and on the though, Rush yeah. Wiki, they have a picture of it. Rush Wiki? No, the original supposed to be. So it looks more like chrome, like real chrome than... Yeah. Um, the sepia tone bronze look. Yeah, the bronze. Yeah, wow. That's interesting. And honestly, I, yeah, I, honestly, I preferred the bronze cover. Oh, yeah. It gives a much... It gives it much more of a defined feel. Yeah, more of a gloomy thing to go with the Necromancer, too, I think. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Oh, and that's another point that I wanted to bring up. You said that the first side felt a lot lighter. I disagree with that, um, because Fountain of Lamnets is a song about life. Yeah. And going through life, and, you know, the goal is... That so might, you, it changes throughout. Yeah, that might be true. I just, I'm like, falled, or I'm flawed in a way where I, I just, everything feeling-wise comes from the sounds and the lyrics are the last thing I always analyze. So, it, it, lyrically, that's probably dead on, you know? Yeah. It, and that's, it's always the first thing that I go to looking at the lyrics, like, all right, what does this mean? Which is torture when I'm listening to more complicated albums. Uh, don't want to go away from Rush much more, but Genesis has one that's crazy. Yeah. And uh, this, it's like going through all of the stages of life. And it it's kind of a headlong flight type feel. We're just looking back fondly. Uh, where yeah, the, yeah, good point. Whereas the first side has, it does have Lakeside Park, but it also has, I think I'm going bald, which is kind of uh, sad, like bittersweet. And then the Necromancer, which is one of their darkest songs for about half of it. And also a single. And then Bastille Day. So... I don't know, I feel like that was reversed. Good points, good points, yep. I told my producer, I was before I came out, I'm like, I got the two only people who love this album <laughs> on my show. I, I'm exaggerating, uh, but I'm glad that I found two people who are very passionate about Caress of Steel, because um, that's not 100... The age, and, and, and with the age difference being so far, that's so cool. Yeah. Really, like, uh, I admire both you guys. Um, for your ages, and and that you're you know pushing the rush story is just uh, it's really great to see that. It's awesome. You got it. Man. Anything for an old man. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> and on that note. <laughs> yeah, Jeff. Thank you very much, Nick. Thanks for being on, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I uh, hope to talk to you guys down the road as well with future episodes. Oh yeah, sure. All right. All right, man. Thank you all, all right, for listening, you. and uh, happy caress of stealing. I'm uh, actually, I'll, I'll take that pawn right into uh, 
going to watch the Steelers right now. Kick some butt. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so <laughs> go Pittsburgh. See you guys. <laughs>